Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Alastair Dorward, the Chief Brand Officer at Amaris. Welcome, Alastair. Priya, thank you so much for having me today. We're so excited to have you. Um, Alistair, I said this to you a few minutes ago, you know, when we were getting to know each other, you know, you have had such a wild ride, even this week at Amaris, you know, with the launch of Rosie Huntington White Leadless Line, Rosie Inc., and the Terrasana News. I'm wondering how you kind of found yourself here at Amaris, which is pretty recent. It's pretty recent news, correct? Absolutely. I am just wrapping up my first week at Amaris. And as you can imagine, it has just been an extraordinary um, journey of drinking from the fire hose. There is so much going on, such opportunity um, to redefine uh, the category and to be a, bring new leadership. Um, the story starts actually um, about 10 years ago. I, I first got to meet um, John Mello through some business um, associates, and I really admired what um, he was doing at Amaris back in the day when it was about um, bringing malaria vaccines uh, to the marketplace in at a price and quantity that had not been available before working with the, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation back then. Um, so I've been a, a close student of Amaris's trajectory from uh, malaria um, and then into the world of um, production of really valuable and rare molecules and the whole conversation around making the scarce abundant. And to me, that's something that gives me the chills, right? That is something that is incredibly powerful um, and kind of morally right. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I've had a chance to work with lots of different founders and businesses, and what's important to me is to have shared values and to have a sense of, um, commitment for the same passion and, you know, their work, the Amherst's our work, uh, I say now, um, in, uh, in this incredible pipeline of remarkable proven molecules, um, across uh, a range of different industries and applications was incredibly exciting. And then over the course of the last year or so, there's been this emergence of the portfolio of brands and beauty. And that's when I, I really started leaning forward. I've been running um, a hygiene brand, um, a wellness brand called Olika for the last couple of years. And we've really been focusing on clean beauty. And so it was literally four months ago that I reached out to John again and said, you know, blast from the past. We haven't spoken in a little while, but I love what you're doing. Um, we have a shared commitment in clean beauty. Um, we're working in a category that is uh, a little adjacent, but, but highly relevant to Amherst. Let's let's talk. And we, uh, I'm delighted that I was able to, and the whole Alika team were able to join um, the Amherst uh, group um, of, of of amazing portfolio companies just last week. So this is that's the that's the journey to today. Congratulations! Really exciting news. Um, Alistair, you know, going back a little bit, you know, I think so many people remember you and know you as the founding CEO of Method. And I'm wondering, you know, back then, you know, this conversation around better for you products, clean products, safer products really wasn't happening at a mass scale. And now it seems like Amaris is the CPG brand and beauty conglomerate that is driving a lot of those changes. So will you talk a little bit about that? Like what first attracted you 
to this, you know, safer, better beauty concept? And what were you kind of learning along the way? So, yeah, literally over the last 25 years, I've been uh, an entrepreneur um, working in the, you know, the, you know, it's now called Better For You. Back then it would be natural or organic space. And I've, I've worked across a range of different industries. I started in the food industry um, with a little soup, refrigerated soup brand. Um, and I've worked in a range of food categories from baby and toddler food to ice cream. Um, spent a lot of time in the household category with, with Method, um, a number of other personal care and beauty brands. But the, the consistent theme is that there is uh, an opportunity for entrepreneurial businesses that are not the sort of the giant incumbents in the category. There's an opportunity for change through innovation um, that ultimately de deliver uh, better people health and planetary health. And historically, the issue has been, there has been a trade-off, a trade-off that is unacceptable, right? The trade-off between results or efficacy and clean, right? And that is, you think back to the early days of the organic food movement, you know, organic bananas were ugly, right? Organic produce was something that was not appealing. Um, you know, you look at the green cleaning back in the early days of Method, there was a trade-off, right? It was about almost guilt and penance, right? You've been a bad consumer, uh, guilty of environmental crimes. You have to use this product that doesn't work well uh, as penance for your, your crimes. And it's really been about technology um, and the advent of green chemistry and a, a lot of innovation that actually shifted this trade-off where the consumer no longer has to make that, that trade-off. And, you know, with Method and a, a number of other brands in the, in the cleaning category, we were able to make that desirable, right? Something that is, you know, you know, not only something that is, um, you know, delivers from a performance point of view, but it's actually something that is um, engaging from a consumer point, something that becomes uh, part of your uh, identity. And I think that is the, the where the, the beauty industry has had its greatest challenge. Um, you know, cleaning is one thing, but beauty and, and results is, is, is a much harder proposition to get right. And delivering um, proven ingredients, whether it's um, Squalane with Biosol and some number of other brands, that is the breakthrough that Amaris brings, a no compromise approach to efficacy, results first, science driven brands and organization um, that deliver extraordinary consumer experiences that are results first and you know, without, with a huge commitment to sustainability. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. But that's, that's really what attracted me from a, a vision point of view. John Mello's vision to redefine the beauty industry um, without that consumer compromise is, is, is the future of where, where this industry is going. Talk to me a little bit about that transition for consumers with food and say home cleaning products and beauty, because I think some of the, you're absolutely right, there is a total challenge and there remains a challenge for many beauty consumers that say they don't wanna sacrifice and they don't want to not have a lipstick that's red, that's supposed to be red, and it's actually not red on their lips. 
But it also seems like there's a lot of confusion around, you know, clean, natural, organic. These terms have gotten much more amorphous versus I think when we were dealing with this as food and household cleaning products. What do you think that's about? Like, do you think that like that has been a challenge or a greater challenge as well, especially as the consumer gets uh, more educated? Yeah, um, it is a it, confusion is is the biggest challenge here. And, you know, in the food industry, when the USDA defined the definition for organic and made it a very clear, measurable standard, then, you know, consumer confusion around the world of produce and food became uh, kind of disappeared into thin air. Um, and now it's it's clear choices that consumers make in organic and and that you can go beyond organic into understanding the extent to which an ingredient is uh, minimally processed, the extent to which um, you have a small ingredient list um, versus a long list of unpronounceable names. So, I mean, I think the consumers come a long way in, in the food category and there is, um, in, but it's ultimately about trust. And I think it's very clear that today's consumer is um, really the, the values of the brand, the values of the people um, become the kind of litmus test for trust. And you have to, you know, consumers believe and buy into brands that are transparent, have a point of view that is distinct and are also share a degree of vulnerability, right? To talk about perfection, I mean, sustainability is a life's journey and will continue for multiple generations. There is no destination. It's always about a progress and learnings and being clear about what progress has been made and what progress it lies ahead. So I think from the food point of view, where we made a lot of progress, household cleaning is still not there. There is still a lack of um, clarity around all ingredients. Um, the fragrance segment, I mean, cleaning is a fragrance driven uh, experience and there is a lack of transparency in a lot of fragrances. And while there's been progress in planetary health in cleaning, I sense there's a 3.0 coming up in in human health. I mean, there's a clear clear relationship between um, you know various sensitivities around asthma um, and other issues that are still not properly addressed in the category. So I, we're not there yet in the cleaning category. But I think beauty is probably the hardest um, segment, and that's why you have to go about the challenge you know, one segment at a time, you know, t tackling skincare, um, tackling the hair care category, ta tackling color cosmetics, tackling, you know, the, the opportunity of cleaning up mom and baby. And that's really the, what I really have admired about what Amherst has been doing is to take a really intentional approach here and to build a portfolio in a way that can address, you know, a broad, the broad range of beauty categories. Um, with brands that have specific expertise are particularly, you know, formulated to deliver excellence without compromise. And, you know, I'm so excited to have seen two launches this week with, with Rose Inc. and Terrasana. And, you know, there, I'm, I'm sure there's more to come. Um, and it is all about, you know, delivering no compromise results. And some categories are harder than others. Um, and there's going to be a lot of exciting innovation ahead. And when you're able to um, produce unique molecules through this fermentation based approach, the sky is the limit, right? The, the emergence of 
you know, I was, to me, the, when I learned that Aramis is producing CBG at commercial scale, I mean, that was, I was already in, I was like, this was like a free gift inside. Um, and there's so much more um, opportunity ahead with, with other remarkable molecules that will deliver amazing results in the beauty segment and, and beyond. Going off of that, you know, squalene and what Biosense has really done with that brand in particular, and obviously the greater beauty industry, really seem to be like the ja- the game changer in in beauty and in in this category where Amaris was getting so much more attention. Will you talk about that a little bit? About like what, how much of that was like basically the fundamentals of biotechnology and creating you know an alternative that really changed um, the greater industry for good. I mean. Squalene as an ingredient is is found in um, in our skin, right? It is part of our body's own mechanisms for hydration and skin health. And like many things, as we age, uh, the production of squalene falls off. And um, it has often been used. It's been around for for a long time. This is not a new ingredient to the industry. Um, it's been extensively used um, in in beauty in Japan, in Korea. But the you know the dirty secret is it's it's traditionally sourced from you know shark livers, um, and that is a cultural um, phenomenon in you know that is acceptable in some marketplaces, but in um, in the in the U.S. it is simply something it is unacceptable. And I think that the what Amaris offers here is an opportunity to make abundant ingredients that are scarce and scarce for a number of potential reasons. One is that they are just not available or available only through unacceptable practices um, that involve, um, you know, animal cruelty. Um, and to me, that breakthrough with squalane, um, which is the fermentation based um, approach to um, delivering this remarkable molecule without compromise in a way that is um, clean, more effective, and at a, a cost structure that makes it accessible to a broad range of consumers. And um, when John and, and Caroline were first imagining um, Biosense, um, I mean, that was, that was the hero ingredient. And it's proven such a um, a powerful um, ingredient and molecule, um, not only to provide um, hydration and moisturization, but also as a carrier. Um, it is such a light oil, uh, so much lighter than in terms of pore blocking than say argan oil. Um, and it allows penetration um, as a carrier, making other ingredients, whether it's um, vitamin C or other um, actives, much more bioavailable. So it's it really has a remarkable um, impact as a skincare ingredient. And that's why, you know, it's not only for Amaris's own brands, such as Biosense and Pipette, um, it's also part, you know, what I love about Amaris is it's like open open quote, code, right? Open source rather. So um, as an ingredient, um, Square Lane is being made available to all players globally in the, in the beauty industry. And that's an important part of our uh, of our of our business, our B two B side. That's so interesting to me because you know the beauty industry largely. I think until maybe social media and Instagram kind of ca- started calling people out 
um, like Diet Prada or Estee Laundry, was really about trade secrets, you know, really was about keeping things close to the vest. And, you know, a lot of the other conglomerates that, you know, your competitors even, you know, they aren't so willing to share, you know, what their supply chain is like, what, you know, what their ingredients are. And so this is a very different point of view. How would you say the industry kind of reacted to that? Because you're right, squalene is very much found in a lot of other clean brands, a lot of other natural and organic brands. But it's almost like, wait, is this real? Is this imagined? Can I trust this? At least as a brand founder, a fellow brand founder. Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is that the um, I've always had a point of view that the the smaller independent businesses have the ability to play the role of tugboat. That's kind of a phrase I've used a lot in the past. There's ocean liners out there, but you know I don't know if um, these some of these smaller brands I've worked with historically could ever be the size of a Procter and Gamble or or a L'Oreal. But we are able to um, say with method be a tugboat that pull the ocean liners into a better place in the industry, and that's a and that's an opportunity to create lasting change in the industry when you're not the smallest player. Um, and I know that there is tremendous in interest um, in all molecules that are being developed uh, by Amaris uh, across the board. Um, and I think you know it's the point of view of you know the, the whole premise of going from scarcity to abundance. It's about generosity. It's about making available. It's about accessibility. Um, and you know if that's a a dance move that's unusual in the industry of generosity and giving and prov providing access to great ingredients that are clean, um, then maybe the industry needs to kind of understand that music is changing. Um, and this is the fermentation based beauty is the is is the future uh, of clean. And Amaris is the leader in that. And it's Amaris wants to share um, the, the, the abundance with, with all players to make lasting change in the industry. You mentioned a moment ago about pipette and that squalene is used obviously in pipette. And I thought that was so interesting. You know, we wrote about it a couple of weeks ago, just about that pipette, which kind of came to market originally as this prestige baby care line, um, you know, for maybe a certain type of customer decided to lower prices, go into a CVS, go into Walgreens. What was that about? Because I can certainly imagine, you know, I don't have children myself, but, you know, that is a category that is about convenience. Essential doors were very much on top of people's minds like this last year during COVID. And you've seen companies in the baby space and the personal care space like really move the needle, like the Honest Company, like some other um, companies out there. So it really did seem like the accessibility that you're talking about really came to pass with price here and really with retail distribution for children. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll talk about it firstly from a, a personal point of view, and that is, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with four children um, who are now kind of heading up to this week. There are three of them are off to college. Um, oh, my so God. It's a, it's, a, it's a wild week in the Dorward household. Um, but you know, I remember the choices you make with a first child, you know, money has no option. You know, you buy the best and you'll spend money on expensive premium ingredients. By the time the, the second child comes along, well, the, the economic trade-off becomes more painful. So to me, um, you, you know, premium products for baby and mom should not be about 
only available for, you know, baby registry or sh baby showers, right? It should be something that becomes part of um, being a mom, being a parent is hard work. And you want to create regimens that you can use every day um, and trust. And that means you're using a lot of product. And I think that have, having something available, whether it's a Target, CVS, Amazon, I mean, that is what accessibility looks like. Um, and I think it's appropriate to, you know, to have in a portfolio brands that serve the consumer in different economic um, and generational layers where they are. And so it's appropriate to have brands that are um, at Sephora, but it's also appropriate to have brands that are, you know, available, you know, Target, um, CVS, and who knows, Walmart. I mean, so these are these accessibility um, and affordability. You know, I think the, the original founding insight of the malaria vaccine um, work uh, back about a, a decade or so ago was the insight that in um, a number of African countries that have been afflicted with malaria, mom had to make a choice. Mom had to make a choice between buying an expensive vaccine to protect the health of her family and putting food on the table. And that trade-off is clearly unacceptable. And I think it's that spirit of generosity and insistence on accessibility that has sort of driven the desire for Pipette to become a brand that is truly accessible um, and for, you know, for, for, for any mom and any baby uh, to make that, make the, the benefits from that brand truly accessible. And I think that's, it feels right to me to, to, for that to be the case. It definitely feels like that's the transition many women or families are going through first. You know, when they start thinking about clean or natural or organic, it really comes during pregnancy and when people have children. So I'm, I'm absolutely there with you. Switching gears a little bit, Alistair, you know, Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement this week about Rosie Huntington-Whiteley's line, um, Rose Inc., which has been kind of incubated via her editorial site before ever coming to pass as a brand. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned a second ago that some categories are harder than others. Skincare, it seems like we've been able to crack. The consumer has been able to understand the, the results from a better for you brand. Makeup's been a little bit harder. Tell us a little bit about kind of like what that journey has been like and, you know, that kind of credibility that Rosie's built for herself and is translating that into product. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in full candor, I, I haven't, because this is my end of my first week, I have not personally been involved in that journey, but I can tell you what the amorous approach is, which is to, you know, we have hundreds of scientists at work. We work in close collaboration with our partners um, to ensure that um, the vision and standards and expectations um, are, are, are met from a product delivery point of view um, and ensuring that all aspects of what's important, um, you know, range of color, texture, uh, wearability, um, all the elements of cosmetics are, have been you know, very, very carefully addressed through our, our, our development team um, led by Caroline. Um, and you know, you just got to work at it until it's uh, until you're able to deliver a, a product without compromise. And I know that, you know, Rosie herself has been through her her work and her career. Um, you know, she's an expert in this. She has gone through this as a throughout her career and she understands the trade offs involved and is a, 
you know, clearly one of the most discerning uh, users and developers of, of, of color cosmetics. So having her as the standard and the, you know, the, the a founder in any business has to set the standard, you know, that and, and set a standard that is incredibly demanding. Um, and that's what makes brands remarkable. I remember working with Eric and Adam um, and the uh, at method and the and the standards of expectation that founders set um, is so important um, to deliver excellence. And that's really what um, why it's so important to work with uh, with a an expert like Rosie to to deliver something that is at uh, uh, w without compromise. You know, there's been a lot of celebrity model influencer brands that have come to market, especially in the last, you know, two years, three years in beauty, where it's kind of hard to distinguish who is an expert or who is not. And it seems though, you are really banking on that model in a way, you know, Johnson Vanessa's line is coming out soon, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about if you could share. And even Francisco Costa, like with the acquisition of Costa Brazil, you know, he's a, may not be a Rosie Huntington Whiteley, but he is a tastemaker in a sense. And this has been a model, I think, that people have been a little bit more suspicious about or, or skeptical about. Like, what makes them the right partners for you? You know, so I, I think being seen as a, as a true expert um, and being seen as somebody who is accessible, um, being seen as somebody who is um, vulnerable, um engaging with somebody who is um ha has the ability to create a following and a you know a an incredible fan base i mean f creating fans amongst um a, a brand is such an important foundation to have um and it builds just incredible momentum um and i think jvn is just a perfect example i mean when, it, when you think about um you, you know hair um there could be no more perfect partner in today's culture um and i think what's important is the breadth of appeal right um breadth of appeal generationally breadth of appeal um across all aspects of of humanity um so i think that uh that a a celebrity has to be um appealing has to have that level of engagement, but a degree of vulnerability is important because that creates just a, uh, an ability for a dialogue and uh, an empath empathy is I think what I'm searching for. Do you think it's harder to be a founder today than versus when you're working with Eric and Adam at Method, you know, in the older, older days, <laughs> just because there's so many people who do want to be a founder today and you yourself has been, have been a founder. Yeah, I've learned I'm, I'm a better uh, commercial partner to founders than I am a founder myself. Look, I think it, being a founder is intrinsically hard, right? Because um, it is very difficult to separate um, your own personal su um, success from the success of that which you create. Um, and therefore, it's difficult to be objective, right? it's important to keep your confidence and certainty that what you're doing is right. But it's sometimes hard to get the objective truth that something you have um, is actually less than perfect. Um, and because you can't let doubt creep in. Um, and that's where it's really important as a, to have a founder 
have have a partner that's able to say you know what this part is objectively not right <laughs> the um and to get that sort of distance from the um from the brand and know that you know it's okay to to see that there's a failure and to learn quickly from that i think the other part is um when things go you know wrong it, it can be very crushing for a founder because it feels like a personal failure um and the the journey of entrepreneurship is one of constant failures and things going wrong and i think it's important to have res you have to have resilience you have to be able to survive what could be death by a thousand cuts um and being able to have that distance from a failure of a product that you have created does not equal personal failure um is a is a challenge that many founders have um and kind of anointing the brand over oneself as a founder is what unleashes success because you're able to bring in a team and hire people that are better than you have more experience and you're able to you know really know your where you can serve the brand best as opposed to try to do everything um so i think the founder journey is um is always hard um it's always best done in partnership um and while you know there's on the one hand it's you know the somehow perhaps the barriers to entry are lower because there there are there's more capital available there is more tools available to scale um you know social media didn't exist when we were establishing method it was all about things called magazines uh right um and you know so while while the tools are more abundant and the ability to to build and scale businesses rapidly is easier because of technological tools there therefore there's more people doing it um but i think that's where something like you know that's what attracted me as an entrepreneur to amaris when you have a fundamental competitive advantage which is the ability to produce unique molecules that deliver extraordinary results um and do so um from lab to market at commercial scale then you have a unfair advantage in entrepreneurship so to me my my arrival at amaris is a personal dream come true because i've been doing this entrepreneurial thing it's hard right but if you have the type of resources that amaris can deliver from a a technology point of view and a capital point of view then you can really accelerate incredible results and we expect to see that be kind of a uh, the magic formula that will unleash success with with rosie with uh with terrasana and and brands to come Last question for you, Alistair. You know, there's been a lot of acquisition news, not just incubation news at Amaris. And I'm wondering, you know, as you talk about kind of what a great partner Amaris has been to these brands, you know, with Terrasana, with your own brand, obviously Olika, what do you think they're looking for? What do you what are you looking for in, you know, filling this portfolio out when it comes to beauty and personal care? Well, I think I think there's a, a couple of things that have been important um over this last um so sort of 12 months one is kind of taking an analytical approach and ensuring that you're you have a portfolio across all the key segments and that there's real differentiation and that there is a real edge you know where the brand you know a good brand has clear edges to it where it stops and where it starts and so firstly crafting that portfolio in a clear distinct manner um has been part of the the journey um and i think there's a couple of um segments still still to come that are exciting that that are you know um the word 
white space is overused and um but there's some gaps that are uh are, are i think are open i think the other part has been um talent right and it's been a you know you, you the, the when you're building a business so rapidly you need to build not only brands but you need to build people you, know, you need to build a team that's capable um of working in a multi-brand environment um understanding how to scale rapidly um able to um you know le learn very quickly um from things that are working things that are not working um to anticipate what pain points coming next as you scale um, and to have real areas of expertise that are um, additive to the existing skill set. And that's been one of the exciting parts. So I, it was such a privilege for me to be able to pull together a, an Alika team. Um, you know, you know, we, I came into Alika prior to the pandemic and hand sanitizer was a, a small segment. Um, as you can imagine, it's been quite a, um, a roller coaster of um, demand and, and change in the category. But the most important thing, I was able to you know, um, assemble an extraordinary team of talent of people I've worked with before in, in prior lives or some new people I met. And our ability to build a team, we, we, it's a virtual team. We've actually never met as a team. Um, we're looking forward to doing, I actually met one of our team members for the first time last week. Um, which is so bizarre. You've been working with them for a year and a half and that your first time you're saying hi in person. Um, and, you know, this whole team is now um, onboarding and being uh, joining the, the, the Amherst group. And I think that is, uh, to me, I love um, changing categories and being the challenger and setting the new standard of clean. But I also love, um, you know, unlocking human potential and, and seeing people thrive. Um, and, you know, it's been a, an extraordinary journey to see a lot of my method alumni uh, go on to do extraordinary things um, as CEOs, as founders. And, you know, I'm excited to see um, the Amherst team as we have eight, nine brands um, really building uh, leadership and, uh, and the ability to provide that foundation of growth. And so I think talent is is an important part of uh, of what's important as you as you look at the, the portfolio, and that that continues to be. Um, I mean, talent is the scarcest resource right now. Absolutely. Um, last last question for you, Alistair. You know, it seems like this proposition of better for you is really coming to the public markets in a different way. You know, obviously there's Amaris, you know, um, that has come to market, but. A lot of new brands are using vehicles like SPACs, whether it be Waldencast or what Catherine Power is doing it at, at her company and her SPAC. I'm wondering what you think of that, because it seems like it is a different model, you know, for coming to market. But it's is it that, you know, the brands like Amaris, the companies like Amaris are making people realize that this is a viable option to go after, say, a L'Oreal, an Estee Lauder, a, a Unilever? Yeah, look, I think that ESG investing is is coming to its its fore right now. You're seeing um, very substantial investors, whether it's BlackRock or, um, say, my I'm from Scotland, so I talk about Bailey Gifford, um, one of uh, the second largest shareholder in Tesla. Um, they have a, such a commitment to ESG investing, um, and you know, investing to do good is is part of the equation here. 
Um, and there's so many ways to kind of bring that to market, whether it's having particular funds or portfolios that focus on that and starting to measure that. Um, and, you know, you're starting to see, um, you know, public companies as, uh, as B Corps, right? And, um, you know, that's a key part of how the financial markets are assessing the actual delivery of, uh, of ESG components. Um, you know, I'm not a financial markets expert, I mean, so I can't really talk about the longevity of SPACs. Clearly, there's, that was a, a thing for a period of time. Um, but I think long term, there's fundamental investor interest in, um, you know, doing well while doing good. Um, and I think that's absolutely a long term profile. And I think brands that and businesses that can, um, you know, not only claim um, a, an opportunity, but demonstrate it and show progress. And I was so excited that you know, Amaris launched their first so ESG report like the couple of weeks before I joined. To me, that's a really important part of um, kind of putting your money where your mouth is and putting yourself, putting metrics out into the marketplace and saying, this is what we're working on. This is what we're doing from an environmental point of view. This is what we're doing from a community point of view. This is what we're doing from a, a social point of view. And this is the governance around that. Here's the progress we've made. Here's what we want to do. You got to start measuring things. I'm a big believer that what gets measured gets done. Um, and companies that are defining that and, you know, showing themselves vulnerable, right? Whether, you know, zero, zero waste is such an important uh, commitment that, you know, that Amherst has, has, has made in the, in the marketplace. Um, that's a hard journey. Um, and zero waste, net zero by, by 2030 or earlier is something which, uh, you know, I'm excited to bring that to, uh, you know, what we learned with Method to, you know, particularly around some packaging innovation uh, to bring that to, to Amaris. Uh, so, yeah, can't comment on our SPACs, a, um, a, a way of going to market that's sustainable, uh, not really for my area of expertise, but I can tell you that ESG investing is, is kind of a new normal of how, um, how consumers and how uh, investors and funds should be thinking about, about the world of uh, capital markets. Thank you so much, Alistair. It was so wonderful seeing you today and having you on. Thanks again. Priya, the privilege is mine. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.